couple of times throughout this podcast, we've looked at tales of crime in East Anglia. Normally murder, normally gruesome. These are, after all, the things that tend to be remembered. Other crimes have an after the victim, no matter how brutal and tragic that might be. Murder, on the other hand, cuts short the future for the victim and ends their story before it could have rightfully finished. Today, we're going to look at one of these victims and her murderer, both of whom suffered a fate that ended up as gruesome as it was unexpected. My name is Richard Shepard, and this is Hallowed Histories. In 1885, Robert and Bathsheba Goodale were in trouble. They'd been married for 22 years and had two sons. Both of the sons had reached a good age, 18 and 21, and were looking forward to leaving their parental home and making their own way in the world. It's easy to see why. The family lived in Wisbeach, and every morning they would trudge a few miles to Walsokan Marsh, in the allotment where they grew fruits and vegetables. They were what were called market gardeners, essentially uh, small-scale farmers, and this must have been a hard existence for all, trudging back and forth every day in the sun and the rain. And in East Anglia, it rains a lot. This was not a happy life for any of them. The marriage was filled with tension and arguments. Robert Goodale was later claimed that his wife was unfaithful, and took particular pleasure in provoking him with the knowledge that she had lovers. Robert was obsessed with a violent temper, and was frequently drunk, and the arguments would often result in Bathsheba seeking sanctuary from a neighbour, further fueling Robert's suspicions. One George Gage, a boy hired by the Goodales to work on their allotments, was later to come forward and say that he had witnessed Robert chasing Bathsheba with a hedgehog, which is a mean-looking blade like a curved machete, threatening to chop her down if she were to run away. They were trapped in a horrible cycle of anger, infidelity and loathing, which was not to be stopped until one day in autumn, when Robert Goodale returned from the market garden back to Wisbeach without his wife, and would not say to where she had gone. The only clue that something sinister had happened, rather than just one of their regular arguments, was Robert confided in a drinking companion. He assured him in chilling terms that he had done the business, and she won't bark at me anymore. The other suspicious feature was that Robert had been seen wading in the River Neen earlier, his whole body soaked through, as if he'd been trying to wash himself in his clothes. Alarmed by these words and these actions, and by the inability to trace Bathsheba at her regular haunts, a search was made for her. Her sons did not know where their mother was, and their father wouldn't tell them. They knew their parents argued, though, and they knew their father had a temper. And so the fear that something terrible had happened grew in their minds, like a dark flower blooming. They were worried about their mother, and concerned that their father would not allow them, or anyone else, to go near the old well on the small farm they had worked as a family. Eventually, once their father was down the pub, they persuaded a neighbour to remove the cap on the well and probe the damp depth with a long pole. Seeing something bobbing on the bottom of the well, but being unable to identify it, they attached a hook to the pole, and all three men dragged up a wet, sodden, filthy mess to the lip of the well, hauling it inch by inch into the sunlight. Whether the men were surprised that the weight turned out to be the battered body of Bathsheba, we cannot know. We can only guess at the horror of their discovery as the twisted form was hauled free from the well and dumped on the grass. A quick examination of the body seemed to suggest a particularly brutal attack. Deep cuts and blows laced her head, 
made with a large, heavy blade like the hedgehog her husband had threatened her with. Robert Goodale was the only and most likely suspect, and Sergeant Routon of the local constabulary arrested him that very day. Goodale remained in custody, and there his luck went from bad to worse. He was tried by Mr. Justice Stephen at the Norwich Assizes on the ill-fated day of Friday the 13th, 1885. There were no shortages of witnesses to the fact that he and his wife had argued, or that he had often threatened her with violence, or that his behaviour between her disappearance and discovery were unusual. Forensic evidence, then still in its infancy, were used to find traces of blood on Goodale's clothes, despite his dowsing in the River Neen. However, Dr. Stevenson, a home office scientist, could only say that the blood belonged to a mammal, whether human or animal, the technology was not good enough to say. The case for the defence was quick to point this out, as well as the fact that despite being in a bad marriage, there were no actual witnesses to the crime, and that Robert Goodale had been a law-abiding man up to this point. Unsurprisingly, this was not enough to save Robert Goodale or sway public opinion, and after only 20 minutes the jury found him guilty of the murder of Bathsheba. The sentence was death, and Goodale was moved to the equivalency of death row, the condemned cell in Norwich Castle, once home to previous podcast subject, James Rush. There, his family could visit him, including his two sons. Whether they forgave their father, or was even swayed by the case for the defence in thinking their father might be innocent, is not recorded, sadly. What is known is that Goodale spoke to the governor to beg for a reprieve, on the grounds that his wife had tormented him by telling him of her lovers, pushing him beyond endurance until he killed her. Most likely he had not mentioned this at trial because Goodale believed the prosecution had a weak case and he would be set free anyway. The governor passes on to the Sheriff of Norwich, and together they pass it on to the Home Secretary, but it was far too little, far too late. Goodale's sentence was upheld, and the gallows began to be assembled in the prison yard. And here Goodale's luck, already at a low ebb, became even worse. James Berry, the public executioner and former boot salesman, arrived at the prison on Monday and tested the gallows. He's only three years old and of sturdy construction and consisted of a trap door level with the floor, under which stood an 11.5 foot brick wall pit into which the body would suspend until dead. The resemblance to the well in which he had killed his own wife was probably not lost on Goodale. Above the trap door stood a solid wooden frame, two uprights, one across, to which the noose would be attached. Simple enough, but a precise hanging involved more than carpentry. The length of the rope had to be just right so that the drop would be a good one just enough to kill rather than slowly choke the condemned man. Goodale was just under six feet, but weighed a sturdy sixteen stone, but was noted as having a weak neck. He carried his weight low rather than the shoulders, and all this caused Barry to make a gruesome miscalculation when he opted for a rope that had been used previously for a man a few inches shorter than Goodale with a different physique. Early Monday morning on the 30th of November 1885, a procession of the prison governor, a priest, a doctor, a journalist, and the under-sheriff of Norwich escorted Goodell to the scaffold. Public executions had been banned in 1868. It was a quiet, somber morning, with no one there to support or deride Goodell for his actions. James Berry met them by the scaffold and tied Goodell's arms together, strapped his legs together, and placed a white hood over Goodell's head. He could neither move nor see, but he knew exactly where he was and exactly what was happening. And when Barry slipped the rope held in place with a brass ring around his neck, 
He started to cry and whimper and eventually scream in anguish. On the stroke of eight bells from the Peter Mancroft Church, Barry released the trap door on which Goodell stood, expecting a slight drop, a little thrashing, and then whatever peace Goodell could find. Instead, the drop was a little quicker and a little lower than Barry had anticipated. A soft sound at the bottom of the pit, and the rope loose bouncing back up quickly told the story of what had happened. The rope had been the wrong length, and the weight miscalculated. Instead of breaking Goodell's neck, the velocity of the fall had caused the noose to slice cleanly through his throat and spine, decapitating him instantly. Looking down into the pit, they could see the wrapped head lying separate from all else that remained of the unfortunate Robert Goodale. A black flag was hoisted over the door of the jail, letting the public know that Bathsheba's murderer had been executed. In the inquiry that followed, Barry was not blamed for the miscalculation, and the whole grisly event was written off by the local judiciary as a freak accident. The man had been executed after all, and beheading was quicker than hanging. This remains the only recorded incident of a hanging turning through a decapitation in the United Kingdom, although it is well known that James Berry wasn't exactly the most reliable executioner. Earlier that year, he had worked the execution of a man named John Lee in Exeter. Here, the opposite problem occurred. The trap door that would plunge Lee to his death simply wouldn't open, despite Berry's tinkering. Lee's sentence was committed to life imprisonment, and Berry was mocked by Lee's new nickname, the man they couldn't hang. Even earlier in the year, Barry's execution of a poacher named Moses Shrimpton had resulted in Shrimpton almost losing his head in the drop, the back of his neck only attached to the rest of his body by a few tendons and a patch of skin. James Barry's involvement with a good ale execution was then after referred to in the press as a good ale mess, and so bad was the fallout that the head of the prison committee wrote to the Home Secretary suggesting a radical reform of capital punishment. This in turn became the Aberdare Committee, which was established to determine the most humane and safest ways of hanging, which became further committees, and so on until it became the committee to ban execution in the UK altogether, but not quickly enough to put James Berry out of a job. That task fell to Berry himself, who retired in 1892, following criticism of his long drop method. In retirement, he wrote his memoirs and tried to articulate the pressure that fell on the public hangman. He described the terrible weight the capital punishment laws placed on him as the instrument of justice. He was later to put this in even darker terms, telling a priest that when he executed women and men who had killed, the demonic powers of the murderer would come into him, and by the end of his career he was possessed by a legion of these inherited demons. He had executed 131 people throughout his life, most of them murderers. Feeling all these demons tearing him up inside, Barry booked a train ticket in a private compartment intending to throw himself out of the door and kill himself when the train was at high speed. An evangelical, recognising a man with something weighing him down, stopped Barry from going through with it, bringing the retired executioner back to his church, where makeshift exorcism was performed. His demons gone, and, presumably his conscience clean, Barry turned his life around and found a new crusade, the abolition of the death penalty he had served for so long. Thank you for listening to the Hallows Histories podcast with me, your host, Richard Shepherd. Research is done by Dr. Linda Shepherd and technical wizardry by Stephen Dursley Parks. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe and share the word about this podcast and wherever you find podcasts. And we'll see you again next month. Thank you very much.